everything I said translate back to that one-on-one -on -one customer experience and empowering the associates to be able to make quick decisions because you've given them all the data they need in order to make that customer feel so special and so taken care of. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Bots are attacking us. Attacking the <laughs> like, robots. Li like literally every single recording we've had. <laughs> I only signed been up for a in. podcast, not for an attack of the robots. Okay? Not for a robot I'm apocalypse. I'm, I'm resigning. They're coming, it's coming at me. <laughs> I told you. Wait a it's positioning for you. <laughs> They're screaming, coming at you. They're screaming at They're me. They're coming in very hot. Loud. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you no, don't. Ah, ah. <laughs> if we have listeners or if we lost people, we have a robot coming at right. us With eventually. Yep, it's coming so in. It's coming in for we're you. We're at NRF trying to start a podcast and I have a robot that's panhandling. What do you give a <laughs> robot that's panhandling? Do you charge Bolts. them up? I got a little juice for you, buddy. Let me tell you. Oh no! Hey, I don't, hey. And now there's What's a camera up, and it's looking at us. <laughs> All right, perfect. Hello, Tony. Hi, how are you? Perfect, amazing. Uh, this is great. People are probably wondering what the heck is going on. So it's yes. the last day of NRF. It is the afternoon. Oof. So we're all a little stir crazy, a little high on adrenaline. I don't know how I'm feeling, really. How are you feeling? I'm feeling in 45 minutes, it's happy hour. <laughs> yeah, and I'm exactly. always happy anyways as the chief cheerleader, but a little bit of liquid courage makes me just that much happier. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't it help, <laughs> really? It's so funny, like, chief cheerleader, right? We're gonna get into the job description yeah. in a little bit, but just like your vibe, your energy, I can't believe, and maybe I'm making assumptions about the industry, people in the industry, you used to be in construction and finance. You don't seem like a finance guy. I'm sorry, no offense finance people, yeah. I love you. Simple answer, freshman year of college, finance 300 professor said, you don't know what you wanna do? do finance because it'll apply to any job you take for the rest of your life. And mm. unlike accounting, the rules of finance never change. So you'll learn something that you can use for life. I never forgot that lesson about taking it finance. And I also never forgot how to build a business, you know, operate off the basic principles that will work over decades, not over quarters. Which is sort of how you kind of fell into your current role and building the Hammett business yeah. because you saw great potential in the brand, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd experienced, like you said, construction, digital advertising, mortgage, those are commoditized businesses. Right. So no matter how I tried to differentiate, Nobody ran up to me on the street like they do now and said, I love the mortgage you did for me or that roof you put on. <laughs> I'm so loyal I, to my mortgage. Well, I am, but for different reasons. <laughs> you could love your mortgage. <laughs> so I decided to try a, a business that could not be commoditized. Right. And I chose the fashion industry because I really, I love art. I love architecture. I love design. I love, I love beauty. And mm -hmm. so jumping into this industry, I really did think it would be like the other ones. Things would just happen fast. Mm -hmm. And it was money fell out of a tree and they shook it. And actually, this was the first time that didn't happen. That was 15 right. years ago and right before the Great Recession started. Mm -hmm. I jumped into this business in the summer of 2008. So I had five years of some great lessons. And let me translate that, five years of going broke. And <laughs> I was going to ask what were the lessons, so there you go. And all the way down, I said, you know what? I can do this. And so here we are 15 years later and the last 10 we've continued to, I would say, do very well. Yeah. So beyond that love of art and fashion, what really drew you to, like what was the potential that you saw in 
Hammett? Like if you could define it or distill it down into one or two yeah. things. I'd like to tell you when I jumped in 15 years ago, I had this master plan. Mm -hmm. I'm a quick start. I saw these beautiful handbags made locally in the community. And I really thought that I can do something with that. It was only right. once I got into it, talking to people in the industry, talking to customers that I, th I saw the white space. Right. And so what I found was there's this need for a high quality, functional leather handbag that mm -hmm. sat above the well-known brands, mm -hmm. both in the quality and the experience, but was below those fashion houses of Europe that everybody knows. So we really are filling that white space. We're providing something that you really haven't been able to get from an American handbag brand in regards to the quality and the experience, but we're doing it in the price point that sits between the American brands and the European luxury houses. And yeah. we wrap it all in a lot of fun. Yeah. So we're pretty lighthearted, as yeah. you can tell. Fun indeed. And it really comes through in your role as chief cheerleader. <laughs> Beyond the passion, just like the energy and the excitement and the fun. Thank but you. if you could define your job description for the folks who are like, man, what, what, what is that? Everybody has a role for everything. I mean, how would you? Simple. My down? job is to leave somebody just a little bit happier mm -hmm. after every encounter, whether it's a digital email back and forth or whether it's on the street when I see someone walking with a habit or whether it's a retailing partner that I stop in and talk to them why they carry us and how they're doing. So as a cheerleader, right, no matter if your team's down or whether you're up by 40 points, you're out there cheering the crowd on, getting them behind the team. So I take that as a very serious role because it's easy to do when the wins are happening. It's right. much harder to get out there when things are not going your way and find the silver lining, the mm -hmm. gold, the lesson. Yeah. So would you say that's like the most rewarding part of the job, like when the ship is down, so to speak? finding the energy to kind of bring everything back up? I think rewarding, I would actually apply to something else. I'd say the most satisfying part is what you just said. Okay. When things are down, when things are tough, it's satisfying to take a Rubik's Cube and find the right side, right? It's satisfying right. to find a different solution that someone hadn't thought of. That's the entrepreneur's journey, right? Mm -hmm. The reward for me is bumping into somebody on the street, like I did here at NRF yesterday that had a hammock. and. Right. Julie was like, oh my gosh, I live in Florida, I own three, I'm so happy, took a picture, told uh, me her, she told moment. me her Hammond origin story. Mm -hmm. And to me, you can't buy that. Yeah. I don't even think you can create that. I think you just have to earn that over a long period of time. And right. that that's the reward. Yeah. So I have to ask, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion at this event around workforce empowerment, building a culture that invigorates and excites its people. How do you do that effectively? Like, is it just a case where like your energy is contagious, which, which I feel personally, like how do you achieve that level of connection with your people? So I'll tell you what, I think the overall philosophy for a company that's deciding to focus on culture, they start macro and that mm -hmm. is the problem. You can't macro change the culture. If you want your culture to be awesome, you have to make sure you only allow people in your company that are awesome. So the hard work of changing your culture is changing your people. And what I mean by that is not changing how they act and interact. I mean changing your people. So if you find you're working in a culture that isn't right, there's toxic energy, that's related to people. Yeah. It's not related to process. It's not related to... So you first got to figure out where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. And you have to perform surgery. And sometimes that's painful. Luckily at Hammett... We've had ups and downs of cultural highs and lows, but we're, we're small enough we've been able to pinpoint even myself being a pain point at times. And I have to get a coach, which I did seven years ago. And then I had to get a mentor and get another, because I wasn't that cheer cheerleader that I am today, 10 years ago. 
I, okay. it's, it can be learned over time. So I couldn't replace myself, so I had to become a better person around it, and I think I have. So there is a time for people within the organization to grow, and that's once you eliminate what the real pain is in your culture. So it's really a two-step, if that makes sense. And yeah. the end result is once you get there, everybody wants to work for you. They come right. over, they come left, right, all around. And next thing you know, they're bringing in their friends, they're bringing in their family members. That is the ultimate holy grail of building a company when your friends and family also want to work there. Yeah. It's another great reward. Well, and I think there's something to be said about ownership and accountability over that. Like you were saying, I had to work on myself and I did that work. Yeah. So what was like the tipping point of the driver without... I mean, you don't have to go oh, too I deep, mind. but the I mean, tipping what, point what, was what I is, made someone cry. It was the tipping point. It's like, what? And I mean, I was like, what am I doing here? Like, it was a residual energy. Yeah, but yeah. you know what? The best part is I had people that were honest with me. Mm -hmm. They're still with me. The people I'm talking about said, listen, this can change, you know? Well, you want to keep I got those a coach people. and I got another coach yeah. and a mentor. And I, it's the hard work of an entrepreneur to go from running a small roofing company or mortgage mm -hmm. company and building a global fashion brand. Right. And I'm surprised I've made it this far. But now that I think about it, I think I'm prepared to take it a lot further because of the growth that I had to put in the people that mentored me. So right. that's how I found out about it. Right. You know, I'm like, I don't have a problem. Oh, wait, I have a problem. <laughs> well, and it's good that you're surrounded by people that can yeah. Yeah. put the mirror on you, so to speak. And then you're yeah. like, okay, I'll take it. And that's where coaching comes in to be open to that. Yeah. And you know, there's a thing called a 360 review that we'll yep. do within the company and all of the executives have been through it, some of the other team members. And the first time it was done for myself, it was very enlightening. Then you do some work, then you mm -hmm. do another one, and you're like, oh, okay, those things got a lot better. You know? right, so right. then you become sort of addicted to it. You want to do it again. You want to keep growing. Mm -hmm. So being open to that feedback, whether it's anonymous or whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, I think is the start of improving who you are as a person. Right. And it's the start of building something incredible. Yeah. I think there's something to be said about zeroing in on the fact that this is an individual thing. This is a it's people individual. thing. And if yeah. you want a great company, hire great individual people. Right. <laughs> well, because we hear so much of like, oh, it should be top down or oh, it should yeah. be bottom up, which has a very very, I don't want to say vague, but like broad and it's like all encompassing. It feels like kind of squishy, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But, and I know you're a big proponent of human to human and H to H. So it seems oh, like yeah. human we're going to get, we're going to get into that at the customer level, but it seems like it starts with the internal people, like yeah. your workforce. Well, Richard Branson says it best, right? He says, take care of your team members and mm -hmm. they will take care of their customers. If you ever experienced Virgin America when it was flying, it was this amazing experience from LA to New York. And yeah. if you've ever been overseas, I mean, when you really empower all of your team to do whatever it takes to support each other, mm -hmm. rule number one, then to go ahead and support the customers, everything takes care of itself. Got it. So how do you keep that alive, that H to H goal or value that is so important to you, especially in this era that like we're talking so much about digital reach and like acquisition and scale, yeah. which, you know, it's easy to like, you get a little chilly, right? Like it feels a little cold. It feels yeah. a little robotic, no pun intended with the robots that attack us earlier. <laughs> no uh, so, so how do you keep that in check? Well, I mean, the reason I don't say when I, I say D to C or I say B to B or all that, but mm -hmm, I really, mm -hmm. really, it's always, it's, human to human, it's H to H, right? right? Which is really just, it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship, right? Mm -hmm. How do you keep that in life? You have to, like I said, you have to empower your customers yeah. to be authentic on what they need, even when they're not happy with what they're getting. And that's one step. You have to empower your team members to be able to be open to that. And then you have to always work towards solutions, right? So I can tell you what I try not to do is I try not, when someone makes a big mistake, 
especially out of doing something, I try to applaud them because right. that's how they're going to grow, right? They took the leap, right? right? Right. So that's the encouraging on the other side. It's easy to be the cheerleader. It's easier to say you're empowered. But if you cut someone off on the knees the minute they make a choice that you wouldn't have made, or if the choice goes wrong, it's the opposite effect of everything you're trying to build. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hardest thing for me every day to keep remembering. And it's something I really want to keep reminding, not just myself, but my team leaders right. that applaud the mistakes, mm -hmm. cheer them on through those tough times, as long as they're making a full effort to learn and grow and to do better the next time very different if someone keeps repeating the same mistake or if somebody doesn't do anything. Right. That's the biggest mistake. That's not something I would like to applaud or I, I encourage. Right, right. Because then that's madness, right? If you, yeah. if you repeat yeah. the same thing and expect different results. Right, yeah. right. And you know, even myself, my job as a founder is to make fast decisions, fast decisions. So I read one time and I use it all the time. If I allow time to go between now and when I make the decision, is mm -hmm. it gonna greatly improve this decision? And if the answer is no, which it almost always is, I just make the decision. Mm -hmm. Because I can always change, pivot, make it. So the only decision you don't make quickly is the one that's gonna put you out of business. Right. Those usually need time. But as a leader, you have to make fast decisions, fast decisions, fast decisions. Then you have to empower someone to make them so that you don't have to make them. And then you have to empower them to empower the next person. And next thing you know, your organization's moving so fast mm -hmm. because everybody feels powerful in right. making decisions without risking right. the pain of making a bad decision or a decision that doesn't work out, which is a better way to say it. Got it. Yeah, and it seems like you guys are doing a lot of really fun things like that feel authentic, that feel a bit, I don't want to say scrappy, but like it's authentic and, and easy ways to connect with the consumer. Like there's like live shopping, there's events, like there are ways to like bring the community together. So how do you think about these different touch points to get in front of the customer, to engage with the customer, and again, keep that essence alive? Well, I mean, I, we look for reasons to engage. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have three physical stores. So we throw a lot of events in the store, accommodation to charity. And then while people are at that events, right, we make yeah. sure they have a great experience. I like to say we walk them to the door on the way out. Yeah. Uh, what I mean by that is physically you do walk them out of your store if you can. But if not, when they're walking out, they're carrying it with you. And then we do the same thing with our concierge desk, which we don't have customer service. We have a concierge desk, like a great hotel. Right. They solve problems, but they're also there for selling. Mm -hmm. They're there for information. Take So the concierge team is the same way. They walk people to the door. They make them feel special. Now, how do you do that on your website? Right. It's very difficult. But I can tell you one <laughs> thing that we do on our website is we make sure that we have, we have the same experience on a hammock.com website okay. as we do in the store. And ideally, as we do in our 900 wholesale retail and partners, we have the same price. Okay. It's always the same product. And it's always wrapped in that same, we do have a lifetime warranty, that experience around the product. So it doesn't right, matter right. where they bought it, how long they've owned it, which we make sure that they have a great experience no matter what happens down the road. So that's not a technology thing until you think about how we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. do we do that? Well, you have to have systems that talk to each other. Yep. So we, we launched on NetSuite 14 years ago in the cloud. We plugged in all of, uh, we've API'd all the other softwares from our mm -hmm. retailing software up front, which happens to be Shopify Plus. Yep. Also from all of the concierge services that they use, our supply chain, even our design team is all plugged into that ERP system. Yep. What does that look like when a customer walks into our store and they've got a question about their loyalty points? On the phone, click, click. Oh, here's your points. You want to use them. Yep. Oh, they had a customer about a bag that's it being repaired. Oh, let me look. Oh, it's, it's actually shipped out today. 
They have a question about a bag that's not in the store. Oh, wait, I see it in our inventory on the boat. It's going to arrive in three weeks. Would you like to pre-order it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So everything I said translates back to that one-on-one customer experience and empowering the associates and able to make quick decisions because you've given them all the data they need in order to make that customer feel so special and so taken care of. Got it. So I'm glad you brought up data because obviously that's been a big talking point at NRF. Everybody's thinking about how do I get more of that first party data? How do I use it effectively and and turn it into something meaningful and valuable, not just for our business, but for the customer. So it seems like there's a centralized view of all of this data and this is part of your operation. This is how business is done. Correct, correct. Interesting. Correct. I mean, I think the word data is very overused at this point, right? It's become Mm -hmm. data, 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 data. Again, back to that H to H. What is that data? To me, that's a customer. It's a customer viewpoint. So what we try to do is, first of all, we don't, not every customer in your ecosystem should be treated the exact same way. We all know this. No one wants to say it, right? You put our customers into cohorts, right? And what we basically is we always give the Hammond experience, but based on the data, based mm-hmm. on previous information, yep. one customer, they might be the most loyal at the higher end, right? We send them Christmas gifts. I mean, right. simple thing. It's an old school way. Yeah. Whereas a customer maybe in the middle of the purchasing of their couple, well, we communicate with them, again, a little bit differently, right? Right. So it's the use of the data, keeping in mind that it represents customers, And I think doing it in a holistic way that can separate great brand building from just selling products, right? Right. So for example, you just bought an expensive headphone set, right? And the Mm -hmm. next day they send you a coupon for 40% off if you buy it. How do you feel? Pretty bad. You just bought it, right? Yeah. Companies still do that, right? Oh, yeah. That's not using your data properly. Right. And happens all the time. Or you bought it at one site and you find it on half price somewhere else, but you didn't look afterwards, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's a bad use of data. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of nuance and a lot of work that needs to be done, I think. Uh, yes, and it's at hard broadly. work. Especially, it, is. it is, it's difficult. Especially yeah. for huge conglomerates. I mean, yeah. we're still, we're Hammett, my own brand. Yeah. I can make quick choices around it. I think for some of the companies out there, they have distribution on all the platforms and the marketplaces and mm-hmm. every major department store. They're on their own website. They're selling internationally. It's much more difficult to bring that data together and make holistic decisions about brand, right? Right. They have to make decisions about revenue, and wins in different categories. And so I'm lucky that I'm not there yet now, but ideally I'll be there one day, right? Right, and hopefully when you get to that point, you'll stay true to the essence of what people love and know about the brand. I think so. I mean, there's some pretty large brands that we all look up to that I think are doing a really good job on the retail floor all the way through to distribution and they're global, right? Right. But they started one store at a time, Yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what kind of sets the leaders apart from everyone else, regardless of their size, is that they're really intentional and then thoughtful about how they put all of the pieces together, so to speak. And I think that applies especially to technology, like how yeah. technology is used within your organization. Yeah, and you said on a recent podcast with Ron Thurston, represent, Ron. Um, that technology almost needs to be invisible in the customer experience. Like it can't be so like jarring and in your face. So is that kind of like what we were just talking about, how it's like those little 
pieces or, or nuggets of personalization and it's through the data or like what other ways, I guess, does, does Hammett kind of apply this principle? Yeah, I mean, philosophically, I believe customers want to shop with people, whether it's mm-hmm. even on a website, they want to have a live chat with someone, they want to be able to jump on a phone call. Now in our site, you can actually jump on a video call with an associate on the selling floor. That's all technology that works, but it should be invisible to the customer. So I wasn't the guy to believe in a smart mirror. Mm-hmm. I'm not the guy to believe in, like, you want to do a price check, you walk up to a computer and you scan something. I don't think customers want to engage with technology in the retail store or even when they're shopping on a website. Mm-hmm. They just want to get it, right? They want it okay. to have frictionless. And if they have a question or an issue, they want a fast response, hopefully by, if it's not a human, it better be a really, really smart piece of technology that they don't know. Right? right? Which that's why it's invisible to them. That's mm-hmm. what I think. I think nobody wants to go through a phone tree anymore. Boom. Uh. Uh, right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to be in a large store and have to scan something or ring a button. No, it should be invisible. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. It's a philosophy. Can we, yeah, we do it. We actually do it. Mm-hmm. Customers don't know our tech stack. They have no idea what's right. happening. They just know when the associate needs to answer something, they can find it really quickly. Right. Those little happy moments. And you're like, oh, that was easy. Yeah. Like, that was fun. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think you guys do a great job of like having those little touches and different services, different elements that all play together. And not just like technology driven, like going back to your point around the lifetime guarantee, right? right? Like that's something that's like, oh, that is great for me to know, but also they have so much confidence in their product and how they do things like, all right, I'm going to invest in that. It's sort of making that, it's January, right? You're making that, those new commitments for 2023. If you make that commitment, I was taught, you have to tell everybody, put it out on an email, post it on social, because the more people you tell, Mm -hmm. the more you'll stick to the commitment. So when we came up with the lifetime warranty in our first couple of years, it's because we had a problem with something breaking. And I was like, lifetime warranty, we just will always fix them. Yeah. It made sense to me, but then I didn't realize by making that commitment, we had to start making better product. Mm-hmm. We started continuing mm-hmm. to upgrade the quality of the product and we had to watch that quality because now we had made a commitment to stay behind our product, not for defects, for anything, for a lifetime. So it's really been a guiding principle, not just for the product, but also now for the relationship. Because right. once we get into a relationship with a customer, we know it's a lifetime relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that, when you know you're going to be in a relationship fund for a lifetime, you really take care of that relationship. Right. Go to your personal life. I didn't know that Jim Dunn, my best friend, was going to be best man and I his 30 years ago when we met my first job out of college. Yeah. But all I know is we've continued to strengthen our relationship over time. Okay, So it's a lifetime relationship that happened by chance. At this point, you think I'm going to screw that one up? I love the guy, right? Right. So when you handle branding that way, when you handle product that way, when you handle engagement with the customer that way, everything else just sort of takes care of itself, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's also a ripple effect to that too, right? Like we're talking a lot about your people, a lot about your associates. So if you don't own up to that guarantee or that product quality, your people are like, oh man, like I'm going to have to answer to like Jane and like I know her and I really don't want to have to like explain to her that like, like it goes all the way through to the chain, so to speak. You know, I haven't verbalized this, but let's think about this. So I have a lifetime warranty, but we also have minimum advertised pricing. So we have a set price. Okay. Full retail is how we sell the majority of our products once a year. 
retired styles, we call it. It's older fashion, we have too much. We have a big party mm -hmm. and then people buy those. But in general, everybody coming to the party, they're big time fans, they know us and they love us. Mm -hmm. Now let's just say, I start deeply discounting my product and I start selling it through all of the other channels. Now I have a whole new cohort of customers that didn't pay the full value for the product, so they naturally don't put the value on it. And now I have maybe some issues. That cohort has a completely different standard of a lifetime warranty. Right. They are going to they're going to take it to the finish line and it's going yeah. to overweigh our system. And by the way, we didn't get the upfront margin in order to stay behind it. So it also keeps me on point when it comes to only making enough product that's out there for demand. Because if I sell too much product into the market and it's sold in the wrong channels, my lifetime warranty is going to have to go away because it will literally right. break the company. And then that hurts the people who are loyal to you from the beginning this for the is, right reason. These are the things, I think, these are yeah, the things yeah. I think about every day on scale. Yeah. How do I scale this business? How do I go wider? And I just mm. keep falling back. Well, Louis Vuitton did it. I probably won't be around when we're that big, but that's okay. The luxury brands follow that model mm -hmm. and that's why they are what they're worth because when you invest in a luxury product, you understand you're in a lifetime relationship with them and they do too. Right. Yeah, and going back to your conversation with Ron, you brought up how you really want a Hammett bag to be something that people hold on to and love and cherish and, and pass down, which yeah. I think ties it all together. Yeah, you know, it's a family heirloom, you know, we hope. We're 15 years, it's our 15th year anniversary, but yeah. we definitely have multi-generations in the same uh, family carrying our bags. And that's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. So we hope the ones that are the 2023 vintage, and by the way, every one of our bags on the inside has hidden. It says vintage. So vintage 2020, 20. So oh, our nice. bags are actually have the dating, like fine wine, mm -hmm. little fun, little inside note. We want that 2023 vintage to be worn by somebody in 2083 mm -hmm. and for them to feel good about it. Right. So then how are you thinking about the future of your business? Obviously, we talked a little bit about scale yeah. and, and the thought you're putting into that. But like as far as engaging or connecting with those younger generations and creating those entry points for them, like are there any specific, it feels bad getting into channels and tactics, like that's not the heart of our conversation, yeah. but like you have to be thinking about all those different arenas or ways that you're going to reach those new consumers. You know, my opinion is this, right? When you find a truly timeless product, let's just talk mm -hmm. about the product yeah. that transcends age. It'll also transcend multiple generations, mm -hmm. right? And again, thinking of the handbag business, there are certain silhouettes that everybody knows that have been around 60, 80 years, right? Thinking of cologne, perfume, there's certain fragrances that have been around 60. So I focus on those products okay. that I think are gonna jump to the next generation. And at the same time, when we have, when we are doing our fashion collections, my design team, who have full authority, they focus on staying relevant. This is the magic of a fashion brand. Your relevancy is about your fashion product that you're putting out today. Right. Your timelessness is about that product that you protect with mm. military around it. Nobody gets to reduce the value of this product. Those core, those best sellers, right? I think when you do both of that well, you naturally become a brand like a Lululemon that's entering their third generation of people, right? Yeah. You know, pretty, pretty cool. Apple, right? Yeah. How long they've been around, right? Yeah. Almost I can't dead math once. right now. Almost I'm too tired. Twice, right? What's that? <laughs> I can't do the math. Um, <laughs> yeah. Me like, neither. Uh, that robot keeps my, coming up. By counting the way. on my fingers. Um, <laughs> no, and like it's so true, especially because you know. Again, at the show, we're hearing so much about uncertainty and volatility yeah. and disruption. And 
it's easy to get stuck in the mode of like, okay, well, how do we solve for that? And how do we not get become such downers around like what the future possibility is? So, I mean, how do you think about this? Because I feel like when the fundamentals are in place and you care about something so severely, you kind of have the framework that you need to build out. I mean, like, what are your thoughts? Like, what recommendations or guidance would you provide to your peers right now? You know, I think if you're getting caught up too much in the near term, whatever is happening, whether it's a year and a half ago when we were booming during the pandemic, mm-hmm. you got too caught up in that, that's just as risky, if not riskier, than getting caught up in this current malaise and the negativity, right? Instead, if your North Star is always at least five years out and you're operating under that principle, if your company is a oil tanker that you barely move the steering wheel and it'll have huge effects over, then you can't move that steering wheel at all. You have to stay the course to get to the other destination. If your company is a little rowboat, right? You're nimble enough to go left and right? Maybe, maybe. For me, staying positive is avoiding whatever's happening in the moment, including high, high highs, because if you get too high, you know what comes next. So if you allow yourself to get too low, it's the same thing. Instead, stay positive and realize the best entrepreneurs, the most successful companies in the world, they all started in the worst economic times, not the best, in the worst of times. And if those are coming, it's really going to separate the wheat from the shaft. It's going to separate the true entrepreneur to the person that thought they were entrepreneur because they entered at the top of a market and they rode it for a few years. That's not an entrepreneur. That's just called luck. I've had that too in the past. Felt really good at the time until it didn't. This was so fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I always love chatting with you. No, it was great. It's great. That robot's coming back over. Wait, no, robot! (laughs) Always appreciate the time, Tony, and a lot of really great insights and food for thought, I think, for everyone listening. So I'm going to put you up to the task. If anyone has any follow-up questions, I'm going to have them reach out to you on LinkedIn because you're a social media uh, pro. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Have a lot of fun. It's T-O-N-Y at H-A-M-M-I-T-T dot com. That's my direct email. I wow, love it. Don't worry about it at all. And then my cell phone's on the internet. It really, I haven't changed since 92. Oh, well, you text me. <laughs> there I don't you mind. go. There you go. I'm that guy, <laughs> He's guys. He's you to the task, guys. All right, that's it from us, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, listening in. And let us know how you like this episode. Leave us a rating or a review on your preferred podcast player. Or like Tony said, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Take yeah, care, everyone. If it's not a good, oh. if they say it wasn't good, I will find you. <laughs> Give us a good rating. Actually, no, we don't want to hear that. Good stuff only. All right, thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.